Hey, before we get to the podcast, we want to share with you an exciting new way you can help support the podcast. Yes, we have finally opened a Patreon account. Go to patreon.com slash 2NJB to check it out. We have four different tiers, and they each allow you to support the podcast at a different level, and you get really cool rewards. So go to patreon.com slash 2NJB and help us continue putting out great content for you. Thank you, guys. When you think about Tel Aviv, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The beautiful beaches, Rothschild Boulevard, the luxurious Neve Tzedek neighborhood, all of the above? It's hard to imagine, but until not too long ago, Tel Aviv wasn't the trendy, touristy, attractive city that it's become. It took a lot of work to make it what it is today. So how did it happen? Today we have with us just the man who can tell us the story of Tel Aviv. A man who's responsible in large part for Tel Aviv's worldwide reputation. Eitan Schwartz is the former CEO of Il Olam, a Tel Aviv municipal company responsible for Tel Aviv's international PR. Eitan was also the head of Tel Aviv's communications division, a role from which he just recently stepped down. And we are super thrilled to be joined by Eitan Schwartz today to talk about Tel Aviv's secret, its stories, and its people. Thank you so much for joining us, Eitan. Hey. How are you? Hi, how are you? Doing good, doing good. How many Eitans have you had on the show, Eitan? I think we had one, Professor Eitan uh, ah, Gibor. That's right, that's right. No, no Eitan, um, the COVID guy with the, the oncologist from uh, Sheba. Yeah, he was fired Oncogen- because of geneticist. Uh, okay. Eitan, uh, okay. I always see him at the Gordon swimming pool. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, so we're looking here when I stepped in. I asked you if you're enjoying the view because the view from Noah's apartment is just beautiful. You see all of Tel Aviv. 20, 30 years ago, it didn't look like this. Did you have. Any idea that, did you, did th- was this a vision that existed? Did people dream of this or? So, so yes, we're talking about the amazing skyline that we can see here. And it was definitely a vision. It was not my vision. It was a vision of the mayor and it was a, vi- the vi- it was a vision of the, the planning department that, um, if you will, saw the urban development of the city as a small city to a global city. And we definitely have to give credit to the planning in the city of Tel Aviv, which is probably unparalleled in Israel. They, they set a vision and they carried it out. And uh, there's long-term planning in Tel Aviv, which unfortunately doesn't exist in most uh, public or, um, or governmental agencies in Israel. Yes, my job in, in that was uh, over the past decade, my team and I, to take this amazing city, which transformed from a small city to an unbelievable uh, small metropolis, and spread the word around the world and to bring value uh, from those marketing efforts to the city. So the most clear value in most cities when you talk about it has to do with uh, economic development, more foreign or outside money coming into the city. In the case of Tel Aviv, there's also, I would say, a national uh, patriotic goal, which is uh, the brand name of Tel Aviv serves uh, Israel's public diplomacy efforts. So we were mm. really a pillar in how Israel told its story around the world, and that transcends economic uh, interests. Some people call it uh, pinkwashing, right? Whenever you bring up the liberal kind of atmosphere that Tel Aviv has, or the gay pride, then they say you're pinkwashing the occupation and all the horrible things that Israel does. But Tel Aviv really has this like amazing brand of liberalism that kind of kind of radiates outward, right? Everybody sees Tel Aviv as this amazing liberal city. Yes, and and I'll refer to that and say the following, which is, um, I would say, very sad for me to admit as a Zionist, as an Israeli, but it was one of the biggest opportunities that we managed to seize. And it's the following and try to understand this. Um, as Israel's image deteriorated, the miracle of Tel Aviv was more impressive. Hmm. Okay, It is... It is easy to have uh, gay pride parades in Pittsburgh. Therefore, it's not impressive that there's a big gay pride parade in Pittsburgh. I assume there is one. To have one in the Middle East is impressive. 
So the story of Tel Aviv is really built on that um, on that uh, dissonance, contrast, if you will, on that yeah. contrast, on that tension, where in the heart of this region, which we perceive to be conservative. Villa in the jungle. We, as Ehud Barak <laughs> said, it, which we perceive to be um, um, very religious, which we perceive to be uh, conservative, there is this oasis of pluralism and liberalism and tolerance. So the more Israel went, presumably in one direction, Tel Aviv's achievement uh, was more impressive. And that story was a story that we managed to tell time and time again. And we must say, we're first and foremost Zionists and patriots, and we serve Israel. We don't see Tel Aviv as removed from Israel, but as a part of the Israeli mosaic. And the irony is that as Israeli governments went more to the right, they gave us more budgets to promote ourselves. So mm -hmm. the most favorable governments towards Tel Aviv in terms of using Tel Aviv as a brand for Israel were the right-wing conservative governments. They recognized the power of what Tel Aviv manifests to the world. So I, I do want to go back and like start, have you kind of give us a rundown or the story of Tel Aviv, maybe from, you know, even the beginning. But just on that, it does kind of sound like a pinkwashing effort, right? I mean, because it's the most conservative right-wing governments that are, you know, in favor of, of annexation or occupation or whatever that are kind of using Tel Aviv as a tool, or is that cynicism, or do you think that that's actually a thing? I don't think it was in the minds of the people that allocated funds and supported what we were doing. They saw that there was a brand here, a sub-brand, um, that is successful. So you have, for instance, in the commercial world, you have uh, brands like Nike, and then Nike Air, a sub-brand, might be even more successful than the mother brand. That, that sometimes happens. Uh, and, and that, the case of Tel Aviv, like other sub-Israeli brands, are they are very, very popular and famous among uh, audiences abroad, and let us continue promoting that. We see ourselves as, as Israelis. We see Israel as a mosaic. We represent one stone of that mosaic. Um, and the fact that we got the government support was fantastic. Hey, it's our money. So why not, if we can have a share of that to promote Tel Aviv abroad, fantastic. Um, so Tel Aviv begins... Uh, in 1909, uh, one of the biggest miracles of the Jewish world, um, and people don't always recognize this. Um, late 19th century, Jaffa is the most important city in the region. Um, it grows, it's overpopulated, it's overcrowded, and people start leaving Jaffa. When they have money, they start setting up farming communities or they go to other places. Um, the ethos back then of the first pioneers was socialism, manual labor. That that is the ethos of most of the pioneers coming to uh, to uh, this part of the world in the late 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, a group of 66 Jewish families from Jaffa get together. They buy a plot of land north of Jaffa on the bare sand dunes, and they say, "We are now forming the New York of the land of Israel." And the exact spot where they did that. Rothschild at the corner of Herzl was and remains to this day the center of the city, which is pretty unique because usually the city is founded in one place and then develops. No, the center of the city from day one remains the same spot. They created several rev revolutions uh, in our nation's history. The most important one, they said, we are a nation. We will one day have a national homeland. This is 40 years before the establishment of Israel, 1909. So if we are a nation and we will have a na national homeland, uh, we need a national language. And therefore, they um, took upon themselves to speak from that day on only the Hebrew language, which none of them spoke. Uh, they learned it. They studied it. But they, it wasn't their, their mother tongue for any of the people living back then. And essentially, the miracle of taking a language which was extinct and reviving it, this was an unparalleled achievement in human history, not in Jewish history, in human history that never before happened and it didn't happen since. Um, when we tell people coming from abroad, you know what Latin is. So imagine a community in Europe uh, saying, now we will speak Latin and it will be the only language allowed in the public sphere. And then they begin speaking it. And then a hundred years later, nine million people speak Latin as their national language then people understand what an amazing miracle took place in the city. And it began here in Tel Aviv, and it spreaded to the other Moshavot and the Kibbutzim and so on. And today, 9 million Israelis speak it. The Jews speak it as their first language. The I Arabs speak it as their second language. I had no idea that the revival of the Hebrew language started in Tel Aviv. Absolutely. Ben Yehuda was here at that time? No. Or he was so Ben Yehuda was in Jerusalem, and he was he lived, uh, I would say, a decade or two before. So he his experiment 
was a miraculous one, but it was essentially contained within the, the confinements of his home. Now, throughout Europe, you had these associations the of geeks. Jews. What? The Hebrew geeks of the period. <laughs> there were Hebrew geeks, and there were also Hebrew geeks throughout Europe. People that, you know, young revolutionaries that decided to speak Hebrew among themselves. Uh, but as a, a language that unified a society, uh, Tel Aviv was the first. And um, Tel Aviv, since it had the establishment of the first uh, Hebrew-speaking gymnasium, Herzliya, the, the, which a high school that exists to this day, um, and then theaters and newspapers and everything that 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 sprung up in the city. So every new form and every new word uh, um, was a celebration. So if somebody wrote prose or a poem, oh. they would read it in Herzliya, Gymnasia Herzliya, the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, gymnasium, and and this celebration of the Hebrew language was something that started here. Um, Tel Aviv was a college town from day one because Jews from throughout Europe sent their kids here to be educated in the gymnasium so that in the first days of the city, about one-third of the residents were young kids, mainly from Europe, living, boarding among other people. So this feel of young, energetic uh, Tel Aviv is there from day one. That's amazing. And uh, just to emphasize this point, because I think many people overlook it, the land was bought legally from Arabs. So the name of the plot was Kerem Jibali. It was bought uh, from, uh, yes, from the landowners that were Turkish. It must be understood that it, at the time, a lot of the landowners in the Ottoman Empire were essentially Turkish landowners that lived probably in what is today Turkey um, and was either leased or used by, by, by locals. Tel Aviv today is, is much, much, much larger than the city it was uh, when Israel was proclaimed in 1948. Um, and it encompasses today various... Uh, areas, uh, some of them were agricultural, some of them were empty. By the way, some of them were Arab villages that in 1948 were, their residents were escaped or, or, or were, 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 were pushed out. Uh, we're not far from Shkunat Atikva, which was the southern border. Uh, they had major, 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 major fights in 1948 uh, with Arab villages on the outskirts of Tel Aviv. So, so yes, um, if we go just back to history, because this is really, really important. 1948, when the state of Israel is proclaimed, one out of three Jews living in Israel lives in the city of Tel Aviv. So the, the importance of this city is, cannot be overstated. Um, between 1909 and 1948, 40 years, essentially, the first Hebrew city prepares the foundations for the Hebrew state. So the educational system and the welfare system and the cultural system, everything that was done in Tel Aviv essentially served as a model for the future state of Israel. Ben Gurion announced in Tel Aviv. Actually, I never thought about it, but uh, yeah. And come full circle, where did he announce the state of Israel? In the in the house of the first mayor, Mayor yeah. Dizengoff, which is right next to where the city was established, as you mentioned. So before. you have the same spot where the city was founded. That was the residence of the mayor. That's where Tel Aviv was. That's where Israel was proclaimed and remains the cultural, economic heartbeat of the nation to this day. Yeah, you, you were born. And today in? has a Japanica, which is <laughs> great, you know, <laughs> and gold uh, ice cream. Yeah, and it's right now being renovated, by the way, by yeah. anything but Jewish laborers, of course, because that vision of Jews actually working for their living with manual labor that is gone. That's not. No, that, my that, hands are too. That soft revolution didn't the... succeed. So you're welcome to go to the Hall of Independence, which is being renovated to this day, and you'll hear various dialects of Chinese. And, and Turkish and Romanian and any other language <laughs> that people use here when they construct. Yes. You were born in Tel Aviv? No, I was born in New York City. Oh, okay. And, but you went, like, did you live here as a kid? So I moved here in 1981. Uh, it was the first Lebanese war uh, growing up in the 80s. Tel Aviv was a different city. And That's Israel why I'm was asking. a different city. Yes. Yeah. So, so coming here really to understand the transformation of the city. You moved to Tel Aviv? We moved to Tel okay. Aviv. So from, from, from living in Manhattan <laughs> uh, to living in Tel Aviv, um, the third day at school, um, so we go out in recess, and um, I see all the kids rushing out, and they're carrying shoeboxes and plastic bags, and <laughs> they, I see kids tossing things into holes. And... Um, I get closer, and what they're tossing is um, apricot pits. Uh, gogoim. Gogoim. Gogoim are the pits of the apricot that you collect, you dry, and then this is used as a currency among kids, and they play games with it. 
And this is, for me, like one over like the jungle. You said a villa in the jungle. I didn't live in a villa, but this was definitely a jungle. So I'm like, who are these kids playing with apricot pits? This is not what I signed up for. This is not, this was not New York. They might, have um, sent, they might as well have sent you to Africa. And, and uh, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on uh, the sixth day of school, it was Friday, so there's a big, uh, big treat. It's movie day. So I came from a culture where everybody had several TV sets at home, 1981 United States. Here there were kids that either had black and white television sets or some of them didn't even have television sets at all. Um, it was a different country. So the teacher wheels in this big projector with, with film. I, now this is something I myself saw in historical movies. I've never seen film in my life. And she starts showing us a Walt Disney movie. Um, I think it was Steamboat Willie, uh, Mickey Mouse on the boat, and there's no sound. And she she hangs this this piece of cloth on the, on the wall, and the kids are jumping up and down with joy. And, <laughs> and you're like, I'm what like, is this what shit? What is going on here? <laughs> what is going on? Um, so to see the city today... It's unbelievable. The development of the city is unbelievable. But, but moreover, Tel Aviv in the 80s, nobody wanted to live here. Like, it wasn't an attraction for young people. It was... It was yes. Tel Aviv's peak, if you will, was in the 1970s. And that's when you see in terms of the population, it starts declining. And in the 1980s, the city empties from young families. So essentially, if you have a family... Or if you have money, the Israeli dream back then was to buy um, a villa uh, or a house in the area of the Sharon region or in the Moshavim around or in the other cities around um, and to commute in and out. So people worked here but didn't necessarily want to live here. Or you don't raise kids in Tel Aviv was a phrase that people uh, always said. The city was aging. You had this phenomenon of everybody had a grandparent in Tel Aviv with like a, a four-room apartment. Uh, and like one grandma living there, uh, the, what, what today is considered huge apartments. Um, uh, so it was going, growing old, dirty, um, infrastructure was deteriorating. So I remember they would, they would, they would unite schools. Uh, there was a phenomenon where you'd have two schools in one neighborhood. So they'd just like take the kid from one school, uh, put them in the next and they'd use the school as something else. Um, and that the reversal began in the late nineties, early 2000. And I must say, I worked for Mayor Ron Khulay for my entire stint in, in City Hall. He's been mayor for 24 years. The turnaround that he created is, un, is unbelievable. Essentially, he got a city in bankruptcy in 1998. Bankruptcy, uh, a city that people abandoned, negative immigration. More people leave the city than join the city. And uh, that's the turnaround. So today we're about at 450,000 residents. Um, I think there were like... A uh, hundred thousand less when he came into office, so that just shows you uh, the growth of the city. So, can you point to like a, a moment where where Ron Huldai or where the city started really changing? Where you know the first I don't know cool cafe or the first company that started or first kind of. Uh, migration of young people. Schenken like, Street, no? Schenken Street, yeah, in the 80s and the 90s. There's not one moment, and essentially culture was always here, and the restaurants were always here, uh, the coffee shops were here, but it was a city of commuters, so you would come to the city to use it, abuse it, and then leave home. So think about all the people that don't live in New York City, uh, mm -hmm. but that use New York City. Uh, by the way, you can describe what happened in, in, in Manhattan in the same terms, a city that People with families or with kids don't want to raise them in the city. They leave to other suburbs, and then the city becomes popular again. So the si similar things happened to Tel Aviv. Um, there was in the 19, well, in the year 2000, a, a massive, massive uh, investment in infrastructure. So what we are experiencing today in the city, in 2022, when you feel that the city is completely clogged and there's public works everywhere and so on. So something similar happened 20 years ago. And there was a complete reversal of the infrastructure and the city became cleaner, nicer. Um, all these amazing big projects were completed and then people rediscovered the city again. And then if you think about the economic growth that has to do with what Israel has been experiencing in the past few decades, um, this must be said, this issue of technology companies uh, becoming a major, major um, locomotive of our economy uh, this is an Israeli phenomenon, and like in all countries that are very, very technological, there's one city that attracts the startup entrepreneurial uh, activity, um, and this is Tel Aviv. This happens all over the world. You might have countries with 
technological manufacturing and industry and R&D and so on and so forth. But the startup phenomenon, the early stage companies, when they first start, it's always in the large city, in the large creative city. And that's what happened to Tel Aviv. So mm-hmm. you, these global phenomenons, these Israeli phenomenons, together with local investment, led to a miraculous kind of like alignment of the stars where the city all of a sudden becomes significant. It wasn't a mm-hmm. significant city on a, on, a, on a world level before that. All of a sudden, it's a city of reference. People talk about what's happening in Tel Aviv, mainly in the field that you come from, the technology sector. So how did you manage, like when you became the CEO of Irolam, how did you leverage that? Um, So I'll say Irolam is um, it's a municipal corporation. People don't always uh, understand. So cities run, run their affairs in all kinds of methods. There are city employees, and then the city sets up corporations which are 100% owned by the city. But since they have the structure of a corporation, it's easier to do business with them, and it's usually around specific things. Now, this is a model that exists in the United States and in Europe. In many, many, many European cities or American cities, uh, parking. is run by a municipal corporation as opposed to the to the actual city employment it's uh it's it just it's easier to do business that way so this um so this phenomenon of city-owned corporations which are in charge of the international branding and the international economic development of the city is something that appears in the late 90s and where mayors start identifying that they're actually playing on a different level it's a different game um Their competition is no longer within the nation they are in, but actually it's a global competition. So the mayor of Barcelona realized, uh, he or she, that Barcelona isn't competing with Zaragoza on attracting jobs. It's actually competing with London on attracting global firms. Mm-hmm. So this, this notion of actually we, are, we have entered a new sphere and we're going to play globally, this is something that begins in the 1990s. Uh, the best model for what Tel Aviv is doing is a company called London Partners. Essentially, everybody that has a stake in the brand name of London um, is, it, it can be a partner of this, and it's a different type of, of, uh, of, of um, organization. But think about it. Um, if I show you pictures, uh, for instance, of James Bond, and I'll ask people all over the world, who's this guy? It's James Bond. Where does he live? London. Uh, okay. Now I'll show you Prince uh, William. Who is this guy? It's Prince William. Where does he live? London. Um, there's actually people behind that. They have an interest in everybody around the world knowing London and wanting to either reside in London, visit London, be a student in London, invest in London, buy a company in London, put their money in a bank in London. And, and there's value to the brand name. This is what Tel Aviv did. And uh, it was essentially, it must be said, there, the assets were there. You talked about the boulevards and the beach. We didn't do that. The boulevards are amazing because they're amazing. And the beach is amazing. We can talk about the beach later, if you will, because um, the beach is probably the single biggest asset of this city, in my opinion. Um, the mayor and city establishment created these amazing assets. Our job was to see how do we identify the right markets to... talk about it and how do we bring the most value to the city and what is the story we tell so how did you maybe take a step back how did you end up uh, you know getting into the municipal administration working with one whole day um, very very um, it's been a very long stint for 15 years I entered City Hall actually it if you will at the moment of where people recognize this transformation in 2009, we celebrated our centennial year. So Tel Aviv was founded in 1909. In 2009, the city wanted to celebrate 100 years. Um, not too many things in Israeli history have been around for 100 years. It's a very, very unique uh, case. Um, and I joined as the project manager for everything that was international. Um, and what happened to the city establishment back then was, first of all, it was a, it was a fantastic year. Uh, unbelievable scope of events and projects and community projects and and. But what was really, really, really cool was that the city, which 10 years before, as I said, had been renovating everything, kind of like completed all the works by 2009. So in collective memory, people say, oh, yeah, the centennial year, all of a sudden we had uh, the beachfront, which was done, and the Hatachana, and the Tel Aviv port, and the Java port, and all Jaffa, and all these projects, and the boulevards. So people don't remember all necessarily that they were renovated three years before or completed a year later. In, in collective memory, there was this fantastic year of like cutting the ribbon and everything was brand new again. Um, what also happened to the city um, was that 
for the first time, the city used international PR and said, let's do stuff on an international scale as well. Um, this wasn't part of the way we thought or a city establishment thought. And all of a sudden, the city recognized that it was actually more popular and well-known abroad than, than the, fish, the officials knew. Um, I managed uh, with our team to do something which was fantastic. There's a parade in New York every year, the Salute to Israel. Uh, you know, every, every ethnic group has their parade yeah. in, in, uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York. Uh, there are not enough Sundays in the year to, to, for all these ethnic groups in New York that have their... They had their parade, but I, the, I, fig- I figured that out when I visited New York one time, and there was a Polish heritage oh, parade, and Polish I was like, "What? A, no, no, the, the Polish heritage is, is I'm a, offended. Is a big no. That's a big parade when you it's when you when you when you stumble upon the Liechtenstein heritage parade. <laughs> yeah. that, that's when you know there's there's a parade for everybody. It was enormous. They had like the firefighters, Polish, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. union, yes. and the, the police, yes. Polish union. Absolutely. I was like, "Wow, yeah. who knew Poland was so big?" <laughs> <laughs> they definitely, um, and so Israel has its national day, and um, synagogues, communities, Jewish schools from the tri-state area—they all prepare for this for months, for months, and they prepare floats, and they prepare marching bands, and they prepare costumes, and all kinds of stuff. And every year there's a theme, and we lobbied for the theme that year to be a hundred years of Tel Aviv, and it was a success. It wasn't an obvious success, and they said, "Okay, that'll be the theme." So what you have for months is hundreds of congregations in the area and, and, and kids and whatever preparing. And then when you see Fifth Avenue with probably 50,000 marchers and a million people, spectators, celebrating Tel Aviv, we're like, wow, how did this happen? Um, we did a fantastic project called the Tel Aviv Beach uh, in Central Park. We created an urban beach in Central Park to celebrate, as I said, the single biggest asset of the city, which is the beach. So all of a sudden these... These unbelievable punching above our weight efforts were successful, and that's when the mayor said, let's continue this. So the woman who ran uh, the Centennial, I must give her credit, her name is Hila Oren. She's today the CEO of the Tel Aviv Foundation. She became the CEO of Tel Aviv Global. She founded this municipal corporation, and I was one of the team members. And then years later, I became the mayor's advisor for international affairs, and then I became CEO of Tel Aviv Global. So I remained within the international affairs realm in various capacities in the city. And we really had a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic run, which I would say was, was halted at, uh, at COVID. But uh, if you remember 2019, when we hosted Eurovision, again, a fantastic miracle that has nothing to do with us. Uh, Neta Barzilai won, therefore... Most of our listeners in the states they have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> no, let, they knew they know now because there's the Will Ferrell movie on Netflix, uh, Eurovision. Yeah. That's right. So <laughs> we'll we'll explain. Eurovision is the is it's the most viewed television program in the world. I think it's the most no. viewed entertainment. I think uh, it's the most viewed yeah. entertainment live entertainment. There's some kind the of category. Okay. The, yeah, it's yeah. it's not as but it's the live entertainment. It's a it's a it's a so it's a song contest of European countries. And Israel. Um, and Australia. And Australia. Uh, <laughs> very, very popular. To explain to Americans, the easiest way to say it is this is where ABBA was discovered. It was the rep- they were the group that represented Sweden in the 1970s, and, and uh, they gained world fame since. So, um, so when you win... So when the country wins, yeah. they host the following year. Unless there's a w- devastating war. Like in this year in the Ukraine. Yeah. But that's exactly what happened. Tel Aviv was constantly uh, seeking ways to make itself more known globally. We are a small city. We can never host the World Cup in soccer. We can never host the Olympics. We can never host large, large, large major sports events. Um, the Eurovision is the single global event that we can host by virtue of the fact that if we win as Israelis one year, the following year it has to be uh, in Israel. And therefore, the competition is not Tel Aviv versus Vienna, Stockholm, and Paris. It's Tel Aviv versus Eilat and Jerusalem. So we won the bid as a city. We had eight months to prepare. And then um, essentially, in 2019, when we hosted Eurovision, it was the it was voted the best Eurovision of the decade. You won the bid? We won the bid versus like, how, like, Jerusalem there, and Elad. Was it a raffle? Because like, I feel like if... I don't know. Like, if you asked me, I would if you, if I had a million dollars and I had to put it on which city would have won the bid, I would have said Tel Aviv, and I wouldn't have even blinked. It was uh, like no one actually thought it was going to be in Elat or in Jerusalem. Um, at, at a point, they wanted to host it, but I think the mayor of Jerusalem at the time did not really want to host it. 
and the city of Eilat wanted to host it but didn't have the infrastructure or um, the budgets. In this case, yes, it, yes. In this case, it required a huge budget uh, from the city. And it's a, 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 it's a good point to to explain that Tel Aviv is so rich, like it's it's rich beyond belief. The municipality, right? It has. From what I know, it has billions of, of shekels in its bank accounts. No. So no? as former spokesperson of the city, I'll put <laughs> okay. it this way. We never use the term. I deny. We deny. We never use the term rich. It's financially stable. <laughs> and, uh, like but Israel it, doesn't have a nuclear power plant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a textile factory. <laughs> we, have a bu- we have a budget of billions, but the budget of billions of, of shekels um, is essentially... We collect taxes and we invest in the city. It's not like there's this, there are these bank oh, accounts where... You have where assets. You have... Real estate assets. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's like saying... They, uh, they give revenue. Um, uh, well, no. The school right outside of this uh, room we're sitting in is oh, a the fantastic. School, no. th- th- those are our assets. Our assets are the schools, uh, the kindergartens, the municipal buildings, the community centers, but they can't be used for anything else. We can't sell them off. Well, presumably we could sell them off to, to make money, and that's what the city did in the 1980s when it was essentially broke but that's you can't give up these assets because then there's a turnaround and you need to build new schools uh, but has Tel Aviv Bahan, run in deficit though? Not, it hasn't been running in deficit for almost 20 years yeah. but cities all over Israel run in deficit yeah. and, and the way our, our system is set up unlike American cities it must be understood we have a different system where our national government is extremely powerful in many areas and what people in America think well in America what mayors are able to do the law does not allow Israeli mayors to do so sometimes people say uh, Americans they approach the mayor hey how come you don't do this or that he says I can't it's not my authority it's a national authority we don't have a local police the police is mm-hmm. national we don't have a local fire department we don't have a local um, um, public transportation we don't have local public public transportation mm-hmm. it's all run by the state so now the taxes as well there's a municipal tax it's a property tax since Tel Aviv is the center of business and we see all these skyscrapers, that's where we get our money from, from the businesses in the city, not from the residents. But Hetele Ashbacha isn't going to Tel Aviv's pockets? Everything that we give in terms of, ta- everything in terms of taxation, yes, it goes into the city, but the city has to spend it. It's not, it, it, the city doesn't in, invest and, and, and have all these, um, uh, these bank accounts and, and portfolios. I mean, they have investment portfolios, yes, but at the end of the day, the, the purpose of the municipality is to give services to its residents. That's actually in, in the Israeli law. So if the city decided now that it also wanted to open a bank and be uh, whatever, uh, 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 a, a player in the high-tech sector, it can't. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not within the authority of mm-hmm. the city to do that. So the city is very stable, and the city has been running without a deficit, which is very unique in Israel. They're only about what we, we call... The independent local authorities, there are 250 local authorities in Israel, municipalities. Less than 20 are independent, meaning less than 20 do not rely on government budgets to survive, um, which gives the government a very, very strong position and leverage versus these municipalities, and Tel Aviv is more independent. So yes, we have money. It's all spent on the residents. Um, but you can see what the streets look like and the city looks like and the parks look like. That's why everybody wants to live here. So, okay, we got to talk about... Uh, problems. No, we got to talk about the parade. Oh, the I feel parade. like one of the biggest... Uh, we mentioned it at the beginning. One of the biggest uh, world-renowned like brands of Tel Aviv, one of the biggest trademarks is the gay pride parade that happens. And that hasn't... I mean, it's not since the 80s and not since the 90s. I don't, I remember it from when I was a student back in 2011, 12. So it's been around for at least a decade. Yeah, it's been around for 20 years. So tell us the story of the Gay Pride Parade, how it came about, how it became such a huge phenomenon. It must be said that Israeli society in general underwent a major, I would say, transformation. I think like in the rest of the world, uh, how we treat the um, the gay community. Um, so the Parade begins about 20 years ago by local activists, and it still is run officially by the uh, various gay organizations, um, though, we, though we sponsor it. But essentially, they set the content and they run it. Um, it was small at first. It was uh, controversial at first. Um, there were, you know, in the first few years, like, police would come with gloves, um, in fear that they would have to touch the activists, all kinds of stuff like this, which seems crazy today, and it was only 20 or 25 years ago. Um, it grew and grew. 
Very quickly, the city recognized the importance of this. It must be said that the ethos in general is this is a house, of, for, a house for everyone. This is a home to all minorities, to all groups in Israeli society. Uh, so we give a lot of money and there's a lot of allocation of funds and efforts to various causes to make minorities or uh, minority groups feel at home in the city. The LGBTQ community, because it is so visible and is very large in the city, uh, has become kind of like the staple of that. Uh, but the city is equally pri- proud in what it does for... Um, vegans. Uh, for <laughs> vegans, for <laughs> Holocaust survivors, or for undocumented uh, refugees seeking, uh, seeking a home in Israel. And, for and Haredim. Haredim as well. And you know what? Um, one of the efforts I made as spokesperson was to put a focus on that. There is a large population in the city of people... Uh, of various uh, levels of religiosity. So Haredim, we know exactly who they are um, because they go to, their kids go to certain schools in the city or outside of the city. So you can count the number of Haredim in the city or, or presume a number. But the people that are uh, not Haredim but religious uh, of various degrees or, or Masorti or they keep uh, a part of the traditions and maintain them, I would think that's a much larger population than what the stigma of Tel Aviv is. I would think much more people here go to synagogue, eat kosher, don't drive on Saturday. Than you walk the, around the Tzedek or even Florentine and you see a synagogue around pretty much every corner. So there are about 400 synagogues in the city. People are amazed by that, amazed by that. And uh, we are not far from, for instance, a school that I visited uh, a couple of months ago, which is kind of like, how would I put it, a last chance school for Haredi boys um, that... This one? Not this one. No, no. This, this is one a, is also... Has yes. A... No, we're talking about a high school which is really kind of like a, a, a last chance school for, uh, for kids. And, and um, it's a unique school. It's f- funded by the city. And the heads of the Shas party that visited said, we've never seen a facility like this in Israel. And, uh, and, and and they said that in admiration. They said that in appreciation. They said that maybe in surprise. Uh, but no, the, the, the approach in Tel Aviv is everyone is equal. Everybody deserves the best services and the best facilities and everything that the public service can give. And it doesn't matter what you believe in. And um, so, so going back to the, the gay pride, though, because we kind of... We kind of went on a detour. How, how did it get to be such a big thing? Was the municipality heavily involved in making yes. it so big? So we were involved both in the in the parade itself, and we were involved in the promotion of the of Tel Aviv as a gay destination. And I must give credit to the people before me because I wasn't part of this when I entered my job. This was already one of the pillars of our branding efforts or our publicity uh, successes. The, the the Tel Aviv as the gay uh, as this haven for for, for 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 the gay capital of the Middle East. Yes. So, the, the, if you will, why is this an easy story to tell? A, because it's true. There's a large gay community in this city. B, because the assets the city has uh, are fantastic, very, 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 very easily uh, marketable to this audience, and the disadvantages of the city are less important when it comes to this audience. I'll explain. So, um, the beach, the nightlife. The uh, the bar scene, the restaurant scene, the party scene, uh, the boutique hotels, the culture, the culture, the shops, uh, uh, all like of the this arts stuff, and the entertainment, everything. So yeah. this is you, you know, in in the stigmas, the, the 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 stigmatic gay couple or gay individual, male, usually we're talking about because it's it, it's far more dominantly a young male phenomenon of tourists coming here. These are uh, services they consume. The fact that the city is expensive. Is less of a of a concern, generally speaking, for this demographic, which tends to be more uh, financially uh, stable than the average in their country. Uh, these are people which travel a lot, more than the average. They are spontaneous in making their decisions. So, therefore, if there is a war or a military operation, while everybody cancels and takes two years for them to regain confidence, when it comes to this crowd, they're easier to bring back. Um, so for all these reasons, Tel Aviv is a fantastic destination for them. Now, the third thing is, uh, we talked about the reality of a gay community. We talked about the assets. And then on a, on a branding level, on a messaging level, this goes to this basic dissonance we talked about earlier. You have this 
presumably conservative region, and then you have this, wow, this safe haven for everybody, and, and kind of like what happens in Tel Aviv stays in Tel Aviv, right? And this is, so this, this is in the notion of people, wow, I'm going to the Middle East, but I'm going to be in something which is kind of completely different than what I what I like, expect. It's almost like, um, it's like taking a risk, but not too much. It's like the people who come to Tel Aviv from all over the world wouldn't go to the gay pride parade in Jerusalem, most of them, because that's like, you know, that's, you where, that's where you get stabbed. But in Tel Aviv, it's like the feeling that I'm going to the Middle East to demonstrate, to kind of stand up for gay Looks rights, but it's also your safe. story. But it's also, safe. no, in a good sense, in a good sense, it gives people that ability to kind of like get out of their comfort zone, but not like, not not like in, in, in Kabul. So here, here's here's the thing. <laughs> you know, the Middle East, people love the Middle East because it's fun and it's energetic and people are nice and people are outgoing and hospitality and all that thing, all those things. Um, and then you're seeking to live, to be in a place which is safe. So Tel Aviv is everything we mentioned, which is true about the Middle East, but it's also safe. This is very, very, very important as for any tourist. So that 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 plays a major role. I mean, there there are, from my understanding, there are major gay scenes in other parts of the Middle East, but people might feel unsafe there. They're going to a dictatorship. They're going to a country which is not necessarily stable or not necessarily um, tolerant. Might accidentally get executed. That can't that, <laughs> that can happen in Israel and that can't happen in Tel Aviv. And this is a major, major there's selling this, point. There's this great show, reality TV show, that's produced by, I hate to admit it because I, I don't like subsidized TV, but Khan has great content in Israel. The Israeli public uh, television. PBS, yeah. Yeah, basically Israeli PBS has this great TV show called Bole Choliti, Come yeah. to Eat With Me. Yeah. They, they basically bring, like, the people that are going to create the biggest drama, right? They bring people from all sorts of like sects of Israeli society that like will conflict. And there was this one episode with a couple that I feel like is the most representative of Tel Aviv. It's this gay couple and they're both religious and they both, they both put on tefillin and tzitzit every morning. And there's this scene where you see them in their Tel Aviv apartment in a high rise with a view of the skyline. They're both putting tefillin on and they're this gay pride couple that live happily in Tel Aviv. And it's just so emblematic of what this city represents to me. So that's I feel a, like that's not that rare here. No, it's not that rare. On the other hand, most people are probably not that. But it's a story which we have been telling for the past 15 years over and over and over again. Now let me tell you something which is really our secret sauce. And this will remain between us. And I will say something which might sound uh, cynical at first, but it's not cynical at all. It's when you have to work with very uh, low budgets. Uh, you really kind of like extend your ability to, to, to look at everything you have at your disposal and use it efficiently. The single most important asset for this city when it comes to our publicity for, for our PR efforts is that unlike Stockholm, Warsaw, uh, Lisbon, which are fantastic cities and have similar aspirations, what we have in this country is we have had, we still have a bloody conflict which has been going on for the past 150 years. What this conflict produced is A, that notion of dissonance which we talked about, but also it, we enjoy the largest uh, foreign correspondent community probably than any city I mentioned. And we probably have more foreign correspondents in this country, meaning in this city, uh, than any of our competitors, quote unquote. Um, because of the conflict. Because of the conflict. So Stockholm is a fantastic city. It doesn't have news bureaus and independent reporters and people on the payroll to the extent that Tel Aviv does. What that creates is a huge opportunity to tell the story of Tel Aviv for free. And that's what we've been doing for the past 15 years. By the way, Jerusalem can do the same. But no other city can do that because they just don't have... So Washington has foreign correspondents, but Lisbon probably doesn't. The number of foreign correspondents coming through Israel, uh, by the way, sponsored by the Israeli government, various branches of the Israeli government, we're talking about thousands of, year, thousands of reporters a year. Thousands of reporters a year come here to write about Tel Aviv, Israel, to know Israel, and they always come to Tel Aviv. So we managed to leverage this ongoing flow of foreign correspondents to write stories about Tel Aviv for free. This talk is about, they should teach this in business school. I mean, talk yeah, about making PR lemonades school. out of uh, yeah. lemonade out of lemons. So open any American newspaper, and you'll see stories about you know the five best shakshukas in Tel Aviv. 
that's because we have somebody living here that actually eats shakshuka, and Lisbon doesn't have that. And uh, on Tuesdays he's writing about the bombing in Gaza, and on Wednesdays he's writing about the best shakshukas. <laughs> and there's less and less of that over the past decade. There's a decline yeah. in, the, in 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 the conflict related news that Israel has yeah. been producing in the past decade, and that's something we've been we feeding them more shakshukas. We've you, and, and <laughs> but it's amazing. You know, they write yeah. about boutique hotels in Tel Aviv like they don't write in any other city in the world. We don't have much time. I want to touch like two of the most sensitive subjects uh first now it's all of the media the housing prices um i mean it's debatable but many people say like young people say i can't afford to live in tel aviv anymore um and they blame you're not with the municipality anymore but they also blame the municipality the state um how do you see this issue it's a very, very, very delicate issue to deal with because, um, as you know, no, one of the things that the municipality is accused of, um, like I, I, I spoke about before, is that when something doesn't work and we say, hey, it's not within our authority, people say, we don't believe you. You just don't want it strong enough. You don't want it hard enough. You, don't, you haven't put enough effort. Uh, you don't care. And it's very hard to convince people that if something bad is happening in the city, we have very little control over it. And that's one of those issues. So is there a way to make the prices in the city um, uh, be lower? If there is, we haven't found it. What the city is doing is building thousands of units of affordable housing, subsidized housing, controlled housing in various models. It must be said that Israel must be said that Israel, in essence, does not really have those models. As a society, we do not really believe in um, um, defending renters' rights in the way you see in Europe and even in the United States. Uh, we might say we believe in it, but if you look at the that the legal system, uh, the law, Israeli law, does not support that. But let me challenge this for a second. If you walk in one of the streets of Florentine, okay, you know, when I'm in Rome, even in the outskirts of Rome, there's no such thing as a, as a building that's less than 10 stories, okay? And when I walk in Florentine, all the buildings are three stories. So you have and had the power to decide that this whole neighborhood is going to be skyscrapers, like, like in China, okay? It's not like it's not in your control. And then you'd had so many more apartments, but you don't do that. You make life... Ve- you, it's not you anymore, <laughs> but th- sorry but uh, the municipality make life really, really hard for uh, property owners to make a three-story building a 10-story building. It needs to be said, like, there is a building committee, right, in the municipality that approves plans But if the mayor wants to have a skyscraper somewhere, there will be a skyscraper. That's what I'm saying. It's in the power of the municipality to approve building construction in certain areas. So now... How much? How much time do we have left to talk about this? Because I can go. I can. <laughs> by the end, if, if you give me ten minutes, I'll I'll I'll, I'll prove you. Minutes. I'll prove you okay. not wrong, but but you'll understand the other side is. Okay. So, Ethan, when you came here, you drove your car. Was it easy to find parking? Here, yeah. Okay. If all the buildings on the street were ten stories, would it be easy to find parking? No. No. Now, if um, yeah. if all these buildings that have three stories now had ten stories, meaning we would triple the population. Um, we would need at least one more school and five more kindergartens, right? Where would we put them? So it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to say build more, but we are creating now. By the way, go to some of these cities around Tel Aviv that were built like Tel Aviv with these narrow streets, mm-hmm. like in the, you know in the, this neighborhood we're in now was built in the in the 1950s. Essentially, uh, it was a different country back then. As I said, I came to a country in 1981 where people didn't have television sets. Some of them didn't have cars. Now everybody owns two cars. So now what happens in a city where you say, let's, tri- let's triple the amount of stories. Go to some of these cities. See what's happening in these narrow streets. It's a nightmare. And these are all the stories we see on the news. People saying, I can't even leave my own neighborhood in the morning. It takes me an hour and a half just to get on the main road, let alone drive to my, to, to my work because this country was not planned in that way. What we really lack is an efficient and sufficient public transportation system. If we had a metro or a subway system like you have in the United States or in Europe that would bring people from place to place and you would not need cars and we would be much more crowded. Yes, that would be an an ideal world. But in the meanwhile, that's not happening. Now, let me ask you another question. We're living in a place of, uh, uh, in a residential area of Tel Aviv, Yad Eliyahu. I'm sorry, we're we're speaking now in Yad Eliyahu, um, which for many years was uh, lower middle class, even working class, right? And people that bought apartments here 
uh, are they happy of the rise of apartment prices or are they would they like their prices to go down? I think they're happy. They're very happy. Yeah. So for every person saying, hey, you have to make sure that the prices of real estate are lower, you have somebody else saying, no, no, I'm actually very happy with the situation. Also, the state of Israel gets 21 billion shekels every year from taxation. Well, but they're happy and they're not happy because whoever has a mortgage out <laughs> on their apartment in Tel Aviv... And the, the, the a, a big part of their mortgage is tied to the right consumer price index, and that mortgage is inflating. Meaning that's not just like their the the appreciation of their property is going up, but their loan is also inflating. No, so, but the prices went up way more than the loans. True, true. But way I'm saying more. they're worried. They're also worried about the fact that they owe more money. Yeah. You know, so many people talk about rent control. I know people. We talked about the grandparents, people that essentially have a unit which they rent out, and that's their pension. Now, -hmm. are you going to tell somebody who's in his 80s, actually, you know what, you don't deserve 10,000 shekels a month. We will, you know, the rent can't be more than 4,000. But that's that person's pension. That's that's how they make a living. And that's, it's been their property for their entire lives. So these are very, very complex questions. At the end of the day, there is a shortage of houses in Israel. Therefore, the prices go up. There are more people that want to buy apartments in Israel than apartments in Israel. But mainly in Tel Aviv, though. Now, in the, in the and the demand is always highest in the most popular. Like in Eilat, there's no... The, but, but, that's, but that's always the case. Yeah. It's, uh, it's always going to be more expensive in London than in Manchester. And it's always going to be more expensive in New York in, in comparison to Pittsburgh. That's always going to be the case. Yeah. And we are the uh, city of London. We are the Manhattan. That's what we are. And people want to live here. And I understand that. I want to live here, too. I acquired an apartment in 2002 at one of the lowest points of the Israeli real estate market and sold that apartment 10 years later because we had to move to a new apartment. I sold it for five times the amount I purchased. Five times. And today, it went, what it would have been worth? It would have been, most, of course, much more. Yeah. But when I moved to an apartment, I also that also went up five times. So, mm-hmm. so we're living in a crazy, crazy society where we are divided not among the rich and the poor, but among those who have an apartment and those who will never have an apartment. That's really the division in, the in, Israel, in Israeli society. Well, by the way, in general, if you look at some of these cities around us... Um, Lod, Another 10 minutes. You go, <laughs> go to Lod. Go to Petah Tikva. Go to... Go to, go to, Lod? Go to, go to, by the way, go to Be'er Sheva. You know, go to Be'er okay. Sheva. Okay, I'm in Be'er Sheva now. Be'er Sheva... You still uh, have less... You have still affordable apartments you have in Be'er Sheva. Yes, and those apartments cost one-tenth of what they... Uh, they cost 10 times the amount they costed 20 years ago. Yeah, right? look that, at, look that at Bet Chan. Bet Chan is going to be, I think, is a great investment, right? They're building... There's the train that's going to be going to Haifa. Haifa is, there is growing. A there is a there train. There is a train, yeah, right? Yeah. Already, yeah. yeah. Sorry. So and uh, and uh, you buy an apartment in Bet Chan, the Pinui Binui is promised because the first earthquake, uh, the city will go down and <laughs> then they'll finance you a new building. <laughs> no, but the, in Bet Chan, you can get an apartment today for 350, 400,000 shekels for 70 square meters. I mean, it's a yeah. four... It's not impossible Arad, to buy. Dimona. It is impossible to buy in Gush Dan if but, you're not in the top 10% or 1%. But you are talking about you are talking as an investor. And I, as an Israeli, say um, having a roof is a basic human right. It's not about an investment. We all look about, at this as investments. You don't plan on moving to Betcha necessarily. You're like, okay, where can I put my money and it will yield a profit so that 10 years from now, you don't want it to remain <clears> 350,000 shekels. You're looking, okay, where can I put my 350,000 shekels now that 10 years from now will be worth a million, Right. So you are part of the problem. You are not looking at re- as, as houses, and, and you represent the majority of Israelis that don't look at houses as a right for people to have a roof. It's this, for us, it's a channel of investment. This has to do with Israeli culture. And this but is a roof in Bechan is also a roof. So absolutely. Even if we agree that it's a basic human right, then... But it's not a basic human right. It's a basic human right to have a roof. Now, the question is, another basic human right is you will have easy, affordable access to wherever you work, you know, the it, it, basic human rights, I think, should be in the hands of the government, meaning I, my, my, my freedom to live and pursue happiness is a basic human right. Meaning if Noel tries to stop me from living, then the government should stop him from stopping me. But basic human express r- yourself. But ba- so basic human right means the government should give me an apartment. Um, by the way, <laughs> under my beliefs, that's the truth. And by the way, the founding father of the Israeli right-wing conservative camp, Zev Jabutinsky, talked about the five memim, the five things that start by the letter mem that uh, 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 that, that governments must provide. Oh, okay. that need. 
including a house. Yes, absolutely. And clothes, by the way. Uh, clothing and housing and 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 wealth and welfare <laughs> how, well, and, how and, does and house healthcare. start with Amishkun? Maon. 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 Okay. That's a very nice word that means house. Yes. Okay. And um, it is a basic human right in Israeli culture. Owning your own residence is is very, very important. Unlike European societies where you can rent your entire life and you don't feel you're missing out on anything, people with a lot of money don't own their apartments, they rent their apartments. For us, it's very important. Um, everybody should have a roof and everybody should have easy access to work. Now, if you live in Bechan, which, as you said, has a train, um, the train, if I am not mistaken... Once an hour or something. Once, maybe once every 30 minutes or once an hour. Yeah. The trains in Israel, unfortunately, some of them are planned very poorly. So they put the station on the outskirts of the city or outside the city instead of going directly into the city like you have. Yeah. The, you know, so you need a car to drive. So you to need the, a car to drive to the train station. The train isn't as frequent as it should be. Now, Bechan, I was in Bechan. You can walk all of Bechan in like 20 minutes. So, it's hot, though, in the summer. It's and, like 40 true. degrees. That's so and so get a parasol. So... <laughs> The question is, let's say you work in the major city, the major city being Haifa in the case of Bechan. Yeah. How easy it is it to get from your house in Bechan to your employer in Haifa? My, my father is if driving to work for like two hours every direction for like 30 years. Your father represents the old world and he represents something which in America people support, but we believe in something else. We believe in public transportation. We believe in it. You it's can't not go happening. to the grocery store with beliefs. But America, America has a different... Uh, a different system. America in the 20th century essentially um, start, uh, essentially chose um, car ownership as an ethos of American society. You look at how the way Europe developed after World War I, mainly Euro World War II, as we will construct um, public transportation systems in Israel, at least my mayor, my, uh, myself, the current minister of transportation, I think most people that look at this country of how small and crowded it is, there's no reason we shouldn't have a good public transportation system. There is no reason not to go from Bechan to from from door to door. Bechan Haifa should be more than an hour. There's no reason for that. Israel is a tiny country. Um, the fact that your father drives every uh, every day for two hours is a failure of the system. It's not the ideal. It's a failure of the system. It's life. It's just life. It's not life in Europe. In Europe, um, mm, they have a different lifestyle. Depends. You can go. You can have a commute of more than an hour to your workplace if you live in the suburbs. If you live in the suburbs, that's true. Yeah. But there's still a public. Not to mention China, Japan. Do we want to be like China? No. But do we want to be like Europe? I don't know. In terms of public transportation, I think we want to be like Europe. Isn't it fun to be in Europe to go on a subway from place to place and it's always clean and it's always efficient and it's always fast it is. and it's always uh, affordable uh, and you don't need a car in Paris? You really don't need a car in Paris. If you live in Paris, you can live your entire life without a car. That's fantastic. Um, think about how much space we are clearing from the public sphere, how much contamination we are lowering, how much noise doesn't exist because so many people don't own cars. Owning a car is 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 probably one of the most um, selfish things you can do. You're taking up six square meters of public space, um, which most of the time um, you don't really need. It, it's a selfish act, and people see it as a as a right they have from the municipality. If you bought a new refrigerator, would you expect a municipality to allow you to put it on the street and not move it? Is that a born right? Of course not. So why is it the case? with another metal box called a car. Why do you I'm expect- with you, so let's bring parking lots. And, but the city won't let you build, many, in many cases, parking. Because that will increase the cars. What we should have is a public transportation system that gets you from place to place. This city is so small that you can really walk from place to place within an hour. Most, most For the record, Ethan came here by foot. By foot, it took me 40 minutes, and I it was probably faster than what it would have taken me by car. You uh, came no. by foot. Yeah, wow. from, from, from Dizengolf, yeah. Absolutely. By car, it would be Where do you faster. work, Eitan? What area? In uh, the Bursa. Oh, my God. And I live in Florentine. So it takes you like 40 walk, minutes. I could walk it. In, no, it takes me in the morning when 20 you, minutes. No, when you come back. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah. 35 minutes. I could walk it, what, in 45? Yeah, but it's so Maybe hot. Maybe an hour. But here's, but here's the big question. There's not enough shade in the city. I have friends who come by bike, though, and they, they do it in 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. I would claim that the biggest lobby against everything I said are people like yourselves who have podcasts. Because who <laughs> would listen to you if not for traffic, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, True. So, yeah. so, so, so we, we want congestion. We want My mother. gyms, right? 
My mother would listen. Yeah, to of course, your mother would listen to traffic. Of course, <laughs> but if there were no I traffic, listen in the gym. I said, if there yeah. was no traffic or no gyms, you guys would yeah. be out of business. True, true, true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, in a sentence, what's the f- what the future holds for you? For me personally, yeah. Um, I am. My life is intertwined in the life of the city, and I will remain uh, its servant forever. And this country, of course. Uh, I see the city though as the really the the. The fulfillment of the Zionist dream, and uh, I will end with one thing. This is really, really important for our Jewish listeners. The name of the city, Tel Aviv. People don't know this. Um, when Herzl published his visionary book about the future Jewish society in the land of Israel, he called the book Alt Neuland, Old, Alt New New Land, and he talked about this uh, vision of a modern, progressive Jewish society. So when the people that founded this city searched a name, uh, the name that was selected was the Hebrew translation of Alt-Neuland, Tel Aviv. Tel meaning the ruins of the past, the archaeological dig of the past, and Aviv the spring. So you have the past and the future. So essentially what the people were saying to themselves was we are taking upon ourselves the commitment to be a fulfillment of Herzl's dream and vision. That's what we are. We will fulfill what Herzl wrote about in his book. And uh, we're very proud of that because we really feel that this is what the modern progressive Jewish society of self-governing Jews should look like. And um, we're at the service of the Jewish people in the city. And um, I always loved working for City Hall, and I continue to do stuff for the city in various capacities. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Guys, we have Patreon, so if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash twinjb. And that is it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Real pleasure. Bye, Bye, guys. guys. Next time. Bye-bye.